0: I'm Chris Lester, your guide into realms of fantasy and wonder. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Each week I bring you a piece of my fiction, fresh off the writing desk. I'll also tell you how things are going with my life and my writing. But first, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 43 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Kate and her team have identified the location where Will Carrinson is being held by a sinister death cult. The site is a decommissioned water treatment plant, which features numerous underground connections to commuter tunnels sewers, an old subway line, and the underground river that runs the length of the valley. With lots of ways to move in and out unseen, it's the perfect spot for a secret base, and a location spell performed by Kate shows that Will is somewhere inside. Callie went in ahead of the rest of the team to scout the location and find a defensible position to watch for trouble. Kate and Lizzie are coming in right behind her, with John, Morgan, and Michael approaching from either side. If the cult gives them a fight, Kate and her team intend to be ready for it. But there's one discovery that Kate and Lizzie weren't ready for. Before he disappeared, Will transmitted an old membership roster for the Key and Arch Society, the front organization that serves as the recruitment arm for the cult at Chisholm University. Among the society's members was the captain of S.I.D., Rowan Shaw, Kate and Lizzie's boss. That backs up the evidence Kate received from Captain Montgomery, which implicated Shaw in the death of Kate's biological father, Jacob Valenti. Jacob and Montgomery were partners investigating the cult 27 years ago, and Jacob was killed when he refused to back off the case. The evidence against Shaw was circumstantial, but now that Kate knows about Shaw's ties to Key and Arch, it's a lot harder for her to deny that the captain is one of the bad guys. Meanwhile, Jared has made his own discovery about Shaw. The androgyne captain has been moonlighting as Mistress Adrastia, one of the local leaders in the Brotherhood of the Sepulchre. Adrastia's identity was revealed after Jared had another unconscious manifestation of his soul-shaping psionic power which compelled Adrastia to drop a knife into Jared's hands. Jared pinned Adrastia to a chair at knife point and tore off her silver mask, revealing a more feminine version of Shaw's face. Adrastia shifted back into Shaw's usual androgynous form, then took advantage of Jared's surprise to hit him with a stun gun. Still under Jared's lingering influence, Shaw put away Adrastia's mask musing that perhaps the time for disguises was over. With Jared subdued and strapped into the chair, the Brotherhood cultists performed their third test to see if he is the vessel. They called up some kind of black, foul, oily substance, apparently the essence of their imprisoned deity, the Shackled God, and then poured it out on Jared's head. Contact with the essence caused Jared unspeakable pain, but to everyone's surprise, the process did not kill him. Instead, it awakened his mystic center, the place where mages store up mana, and where a few special individuals, like Kate, can absorb the essence of supernatural beings. Apparently Jared also possesses this talent, because his mystic center soaked up the essence, putting an end to the torment it had inflicted on him. Now that Jared has passed this test, all that remains is the final ritual. The Brotherhood will open a channel between Jared and the extra-dimensional prison where the Shackled God resides. If the God approves of him, then Jared will be filled with its power, and he will become the vessel in truth. If he is judged unworthy, none of this will be Jared's concern any longer, because the God will kill him. Now desperate to escape, Jared turns his focus inward to the newly awakened core of arcane power inside him. According to Shaw, the Brotherhood must ground Jared in a ley line in order to make their attempt, and that will give Jared a connection, however tenuous, with the outside world. If he can use that connection to reach out to someone with arcane senses, he might be able to send them a message they can hear. Too bad he has no idea what he's doing. The Lost and the Least A Novel of Metamore City Written in Red By Chris Lester Chapter 43 The retired water treatment plant had few structures left above ground. A line of chain-link fencing surrounded the site, with metal signs bearing the grey ghost development logo, and No Trespassing, interspersed at regular intervals. Despite the signs, though, there didn't seem to be any actual attempt at deterring access. There was no gate, and not even a chain across the double-width driveway to bar passage. As they entered the grounds, Kate thought she understood the lack of security. There was nothing here to steal. The space was an open lot, covered mostly in concrete, with sporadic patches of gravel where, Kate presumed, buildings had once stood. The only structure left standing was what appeared to be a small utility shed, made of corrugated steel that was rusting around the edges. Kate looked around for Callie's swoop as she approached, but she didn't see it anywhere on the lot. She scanned the nearby alleys, then the rooftops of some small neighboring outbuildings. She looked at the nearest of the big towers, examining them for ledges or outcroppings or parking garages that might look out onto the lot. Nothing. "'Where is she?' Kate muttered, as she pulled up in front of the utility shed. Lizzie opened her door and started to get out. "'Lizzie!' Kate hissed. "'Don't move until we know we're covered!' Lizzie's tail twitched. We are covered, she said confidently, and stepped out. Kate cursed under her breath, then drew her gun and exited the cruiser. She scanned all the potential hiding spots again, looking for whatever clue she had missed. I don't have visual, she said, irritated. She looked over at Lizzie, who held up one finger in a wait posture. Kate waited but after five seconds, nothing new revealed itself. "'Well?' she demanded. Lizzie's finger stabbed upward, and then Kate realized what that finger actually meant. She looked up. Eighty meters overhead, on the underside of the first skyway, Callie's swoop hovered next to a massive lighting panel, just barely visible in the shadows. The runner had climbed up into the steel framework of the light fixture, which gave her and her rifle command of the entire lot and a good bit of the surrounding neighborhood. Kate looked down at the ground and saw a small red dot wiggle back and forth once in front of the shed's entrance. Kate looked back to Lizzie. I really need to stop underestimating you. You really do, Lizzie agreed, without rancor. While they waited for the others to arrive, Kate examined the shed. It had a deadbolt lock of recent make and a freshly painted steel door, but the rest of it looked like it had been sitting here unattended for ten or twenty years. The walls were heavily marked in a series of gang tags. Older ones she recognized included a pair of downward facing triangles, a bat, an unk, and the words Blood Clan, all indicators of gangs aligned with the Vampire Syndicate. The vamp tags were spray-painted in red, and covered up older, more obscure tags from assorted gangs that had held this territory before them. But atop the vamp tags were a new set of symbols, spray-painted in white, spider webs painted over the bats, the number 8 in various representations, and the spider glyph Kate had seen before. It was a clear challenge to the reds, and the fact that none of the white tags had been covered up said that the vampire gangs had not reclaimed this territory. None of the gangs, however, seemed to have made any attempt at breaking into the shed. Kate attributed that to the building's decrepit appearance. Like the lot itself, the shed seemed to have nothing worth taking. It was valued by the gangs solely as a marking post, a prominent position where they could announce their presence. None of them, it seemed had guessed at what lay beneath their feet. Lizzie carefully examined the space around the door. I don't see any signs of an alarm on the door. They must have thought it would be too conspicuous. Kate opened her aura sight, examining the flow of mana around the building. No sign of any wards, either. Lizzie tapped at the deadbolt lock. This could pose a problem, though. I don't suppose we have a breaching ram in the trunk? Kate wasn't sure, so they checked. No luck. That's okay, Kate said. She gestured to the south end of the lot, where Morgan's skimmer was just pulling up. I have another idea. Morgan and John exited the skimmer with their weapons at the ready. Morgan had come in full vampiric intimidation mode, with her eyes shining yellow-green and her black leather duster billowing around her. John had abandoned his human glamour, and was showing off his brick-red skin, ram's horns, and amber eyes. He was still shirtless, and looked damned good doing it. He carried his shotgun crosswise over his chest, which he'd probably learned by watching a movie at some point. Kate was relieved to see him exercising good trigger discipline at least, keeping his index finger on the metal guard and not on the trigger itself. Both John and Morgan wore steely, determined expressions that promised trouble for anyone who got in their way. Lizzie came up alongside Kate as the vampire and the Daedra approached. Kate noticed her tail had fluffed up in alarm. I am very glad they're on our side, Lizzie said quietly. You and me both, Kate murmured back. Morgan nodded respectfully to Lizzie as they approached then turned her attention to Kate. "'Is that our entrance, then?' she asked, indicating the shed. "'Looks like,' Kate said. "'We've got a lock in our way, though, and our resident thief is on sniper duty. Think he can open it for us?' Morgan inspected the door, bending low to examine the bottom of the frame. There was about a two-centimeter gap between the door and the slab of concrete below it. "'Shouldn't be a problem.' I'm not sensing a threshold. She handed Lizzie the pistol she had taken from Silas's arsenal. Hold this for me, will you, dear? I'm not familiar enough with it yet to discorporate with it. Lizzie's eyes went a little wide. She took the gun and stepped back, the tip of her tail twitching with interest. Morgan let her whole body visibly relax, her eyes going unfocused. After a few seconds, she began to fade her body turning first translucent, then transparent. A cloud of white vapor began rolling off of her, like dry ice, gathering in a roughly spherical mass that was several times larger than her humanoid form. In less than thirty seconds, her body had discorporated completely, leaving only the churning white cloud of her mist form. Amazing, Lizzie whispered. Morgan could not speak in this form, but she briefly extended a tendril of cloud and brushed it against Lizzie's hand, apparently acknowledging the compliment. Then she floated over to the door and disappeared through the gap at the bottom. Kate waited anxiously after Morgan vanished from sight. Reincorporating always took vampires longer than discorporating, and they were vulnerable during the time they were in transition. If Morgan ran into a trap on the other side of the door, Kate and the others would be powerless to help her. After two heart-pounding minutes, though, the deadbolt slid back, and Morgan opened the door from the inside. She smiled at Kate, obviously pleased with herself. Good work, Kate said. Thank you, darling. A pair of headlights swept over the entrance to the shed, and then Michael Skimmer pulled up behind Lizzie. He seemed a bit flustered as he climbed out, his sidearm in his hand. Sorry I'm late, he said. I got stuck behind a truck. You're here just in time, Kate said. Morgan and I will take point. John, Lizzie, you follow about two meters back and cover us. Michael, guard our exit, and keep an open line to Callie up topside. If she spots reinforcements moving in, sound the alarm. Otherwise, everybody keep radio silence until we run into trouble. She looked around at each of them in turn, checking for comprehension. Nobody looked confused. It's possible the cult never expected us to find this place, she said. It's more likely they're expecting company, and we'll run into guards or something nastier. So keep your eyes and ears open and watch each other's backs. They all nodded. Kate beckoned them with a wave of her hand, and they descended into the darkness. No one told Jared when the fourth test began, but he knew nonetheless. The lines of the arcane sigils around him began to glow again, and the fire of the candles took on a shimmering, multicolored radiance. The Brotherhood cultists were all out of sight now, conducting the ritual from the safety of a chamber below him. Lines of power ran through narrow channels in the stone floor, like extension cords for mystic energies. Only the vessel may look upon the face of the Shackled God, Shod explained, when she came back briefly to inspect the setup of the spell. Those he judges unworthy are punished. Jared had wanted to ask, punished how? But since he was still tightly gagged, He had to settle for raising his eyebrows at her. Shaw smiled sardonically back at him. What, is our brave potential having second thoughts? She patted his cheek. Don't worry, doctor. Either you will pass this test, or, more likely, you will die. Either way, your problems will be over. She had left him, then, shutting the door to the chamber behind her. Jared had been left with only the candles for light, not that there was much to look at. Now the chamber grew brighter as the sigils of the incantation flared to life. Jared could feel something building in the room. He did not have the words to describe it, since he had never been trained in the principles of magic, but he knew it was there. It was like a growing pressure or a build-up of electrical charge, a sense of something looking for release. Then, all at once something gave way. The buildup broke through whatever unseen barrier was holding it back, and a flood of sensation engulfed Jared. His skin flushed hot and cold simultaneously, his nerve endings sending back confused signals as a power they were never meant to interpret flooded over them. Jared felt like he was drowning, and yet, at the same time, a giddy feeling of euphoria rushed through him. If he hadn't been gagged, he might have screamed, or laughed, or cried, or done all of them at once. I'm in the ley line. The thought came to him slowly, as he struggled to reason through the torrent of raw sensations. His body and soul were awash in raw, unfiltered manna, and for the first time in his life, he was able to sense its presence. He felt like a man who had been deaf from birth, suddenly being exposed to the full force of a grand orchestra, with a fireworks display and a rock concert happening at the same time. The manna flowed into him and through him as he bathed in the ley line's power. He could feel it coursing down his spine, from crown to tailbone. Some of it flowed into his core, that spot just below his navel, and there it stayed, like water flowing into a deep well. He kept expecting it to brim up, to overflow, but the mana just kept filling him. He had no idea where it was all going. He had no idea what he would do with it if he survived this. He had no training in magic, had never shown the slightest bit of potential for it. Maybe I wasn't meant to, he thought suddenly. Maybe I was only meant to be a battery. Or a vessel. Something to store power, not to use it. Jared had no idea how much time had passed when he could finally think clearly again. The ley line still flowed through him, but his mind and body seemed to grow gradually accustomed to the sensations. Eventually, he found that he could look around the room again, that he could notice things outside his own skin. What he noticed now was a pulse of energy flowing into the ley line. It came up from those arcane channels in the floor Spread through the pattern the cultists had drawn and then radiated outward into the ley line's current. It was a small thing compared to the flow of the ley line itself, but there was a rhythm and a structure to it. Jared's mind, grasping desperately for analogies, envisioned a man with a long wooden plank at the edge of a wide, deep river. The man moved the plank back and forth, creating waves that rippled outward across the water. The man could not match the force of the river, but he didn't need to. The river's own substance carried the pattern forward and outward, the waves traveling far beyond where the man stood. The pulse started small and weak, but as Jared watched, it grew gradually stronger. The cultists below must be channeling more energy into the spell. Hadn't Shaw said they had been storing it up? Now they were using it gradually building the height of those waves, sending stronger pulses out into the current. In the river of Jared's analogy, he imagined the waves rippling across the length of the river, sloshing against the far bank. And where is that far bank, exactly? Shaw had said they needed to open a channel to the Shackled God's prison. Do the ley lines connect our world to other worlds? Jared didn't know, He felt overwhelmed by the sheer magnitude of the things he didn't know. It was like being a child again, in a world far stranger and more frightening than anything he had ever known. I need to get out of here. He was in the ley line now, that much was clear. Wherever else the line might lead, it definitely flowed down the length of Metamore Valley, following the path of the river to the sea. Jared didn't know if that connection would amplify his pathetically weak telepathy. A wizard's magic fields didn't usually interact with psionics, but this was raw, wild mana, not a structured spell, and maybe that was different. Some people got psionic powers from exposure to lots of mana, didn't they? He remembered seeing those young people on the news a few weeks ago, the ones who had gone to the Telvari Rift and come back with psionic abilities. If I'm going to do this, I'd better start trying. Jared closed his eyes and focused on his telepathy. He formed a thought carefully, like a man rehearsing his words before leaving a voice message on an answering machine. This is Jared Tamlin. I'm a prisoner. Help me. He kept the ideas as simple as possible, because simple ideas were easier for untrained minds to pick up on. I'm being held underground by a cult that's trying to unleash an imprisoned god might have been more useful and descriptive, but the barrage of complex, interrelated thoughts would most likely end up jumbled together, impossible to understand. So Jared focused on those three simple ideas, repeating them like a mantra. This is Jared Tamlin. I'm a prisoner. Help me. This is Jared Tamlin. I'm a prisoner. Help me. This is Jared Tamlin. I'm a prisoner. Help me. He let those thoughts flow out through his telepathy, spilling them out into the ley line, letting them become his own tiny pattern of ripples in the vast river. Maybe they would vanish there, drowned out in the rush of wild manna. Or maybe, just maybe, someone would hear him. And that's the end of chapter 43. Come back next time when our heroes find Will and Kate is faced with a terrible choice. Now it's time to check in on my writing endeavors. Here's your weekly writing report I wrote 3,275 words this week over the course of five hours, for an average writing speed of 655 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 189 days without breaking my chain. This week I did a bit more work on the Kevin story, All the World Fire, but then I had to stop and switch gears, because my beta reader got back to me with her comments on Homecoming. As usual, Abby was full of great advice on how to make this story better. This included writing a new opening chapter, which would be a better introduction to John and Kate for new readers, as well as setting up the key relationship conflict that will follow them through the story. I spent the rest of the week working on those edits, and it will probably take me another week or two to finish them. Over on the Patreon feed, we got a bunch of new bonus content from Metamore artist Carol Foote. Carol is working on the last piece of artwork for To Walk in Shadow, and while she was playing around with it, she came up with a bunch of fun little doodles and sketches related to the story and its characters. She calls these omaki, which is anime slang for bonus features. They're up on the Patreon feed now, and they're visible to my $3 patrons and up. If you like my fiction and want to help me keep making it, becoming a patron is the very best way to support me. For $3 a month, you get access to sneak peeks, cover reveals, art previews, and other cool stuff. Plus, all of my patrons get access to my behind-the-episode commentaries. These are unscripted podcasts, usually between 20 and 40 minutes long, where I talk about the Easter eggs, inspirations, and hidden stories behind each chapter of my fiction. You get them delivered to you in a custom RSS feed which you can plug into Apple Podcasts or any other podcatcher. Just go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester, take a look at the reward levels, and make your pledge today. And if you're already a patron, thank you so much for your support. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorcityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash authorchrislester, the fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Mastodon handle is at authorchrislester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts it makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and the Liminal Corvid Press.